Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills Podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, uh, I am a, a big comic book nerd. I love, I love comic books. I've loved comic books since I was a little kid. Uh, I love the Marvel comics. And for me, it all started with the 90s uh, X-Men cartoon. Anybody remember that? Okay, anybody else remember that? Yes, I see a fist raised as he walks out the back of the room. I just remember Wolverine and that yellow and blue leotard jumpsuit thing. And I, want, I, I just wanted those mutton chops for so long. So Amy's just lucky I hadn't shaved my face into that yet. Um, but I love, I love comics. And I it started this love for comic books and I bought comic books, just anything I could, I could get. And, uh, and, and ventured over into DC. And so I've always been a huge comic book fan. And, and the new Marvel movies have come out over the last several years, um, have been an incredible open door for a lot of people to the comic book world. And so the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the MCU has been, really been great. But the last like four or five years, it's really taken a nosedive. Um, it really has been just way too much going on. Disney Plus shows, I just can't keep up with it. There's just too much going on that I've lost track. But one of the shows that really caught my attention was the show called WandaVision. And this show was about Wanda Maximoff and her husband, Vision. And so Wanda is, is someone who later will be known as the Scarlet Witch. And if you know a little bit of the backstory, she's lost her love, this character Vision, and she's lost her future. And so it drops you into the story. And what you need to know about Wanda is she has the ability to manipulate reality. She's able to make everyone around her see the world that she wants to be able to see. And, we, and the show starts off and it drops her in the middle of this 50s sitcom. It looks like the Cleavers. And so she, it's black and white. She's dropped in this, this, uh, this sitcom. And all of a sudden, her husband, Vision, is now alive and comes out. And you see this interaction between the two of them. And the show then begins to t- sort of time jump. It jumps from the 50s to the 60s. They end up having twin boys. She gets this family she's always wanted. It moves to the 70s, the, the 80s, the 90s, all the way to the 2000s. And what you notice with each little iteration is it's a different spin on a TV family. So it moves from like the Cleavers to the Brady Bunch. It moves to like the 80s and some of the shows there. If you watch Modern Family, it jumps to the 2000s and everybody's just an absolute mess. It, it jumps into that. And what you begin to realize is that this isn't reality. This is just something that's happening in her world that she's creating in order to deal with her grief. This woman is dealing with grief over the loss of a family, the loss of her future, brokenness. And if you know anything about her story, she's also trying to recover from the trauma of her upbringing. All of her trauma, her family, her brokenness shaped her into the person that she was. And as we look at Genesis chapter 26 this morning, we see that Isaac has been shaped by his family as well. Isaac has been shaped by his upbringing, his family, his father, Abraham. And this affects not only Isaac, it affects his relationship with his wife, Rebecca, and it also affects his kids. And then for generations to come, we see the fallout of his family's brokenness. All of us, every one of us, you and I have been shaped by our families in both positive and negative ways. I've been shaped deeply by my family. So have you. You've been shaped by your family in ways that you can see that are really easy to see. And you've been shaped by your family in ways that are harder to see. Um, I realize the older that I get, I am so much like my dad. 
If you ever to meet my father, he's, he passed away six years ago, but if you'd ever met my father, you would actually thought he, was, he looked like Saddam Hussein. I'm not kidding. He was very Italian, big black mustache, and on multiple occasions, especially when Saddam Hussein was a fugitive from the law, uh, people actually thought he was Saddam Hussein. It's strange. I'll show you a picture later. But we are very much alike in temperament, very much alike in personality. And I noticed over time that I began to do some of the same things that my dad would do. Like, I would just, like, pick things up with my toes. I've always done this. I'd, like, instead of bending over, I don't know why I'm tall, I don't know. I'd, like, pick up quarters or cords or with my toes. And then one day, I watched my dad do it. And I went, oh, oh my gosh, that's where I learned it from. I tell some of the same stupid jokes. I, say, I talk the same way as my dad does. And oftentimes, it's ways that shape us that we can't see, and they come out when we react because what our family has done to us and shaping us is give us what is normal to us. It's what feels normal. So when I talk about the the topic of family, you probably feel something right now. You probably feel something when I even say the word family. For some of you, it's hurt and pain. The word family is not a safe place for you. You've experienced deep hurt and pain and trauma from your family. For some of you, it's appreciation. You appreciate your family and whether they've loved you and poured into you and raised you. For some of you, it's longing. You long to have the family that you've never had. For some of you, it's hopefulness, believing that God has better for you, but more than likely, it's a mix of all of those. Every family is a mix of both blessing and brokenness. And like Isaac's family, you are shaped by the blessing and the brokenness of your family, but you're not defined by your family of origin. And so this morning, we're going to explore a couple of ideas. First is how we're shaped by the blessing of family. And then secondly, how we're shaped by the brokenness of family. And then we're going to look at how the gospel restores and redeems us in our family. So first, let's look at how you are shaped by the blessing of family. Now, last week, we looked at Abraham's life coming to an end in chapter 25, and we see how Abraham is now passing the blessing on to Isaac. So he's passed the blessing on, and he wants to make sure that Isaac alone receives this blessing from the family. We see that he has other family members. He has his, his, Abraham's second wife and his, her kids, and then the, white, the children that he had, the child he had through infidelity with Hagar. Abraham sends all of them out of the promised land so that Isaac alone can receive the blessing. And so then we see the story fast forward toward the birth of Esau and Jacob, and we see all the mess that's there. And then Genesis 26 kind of jumps backwards in time. Genesis 26 actually probably happens somewhere in the middle of Genesis chapter 25. It's a little bit like a flashback in the story. And so the focus of Genesis 26 is to show us how Isaac received the blessing. And we see this in verses 1 through 5, which Nkasi read this morning, um, as God affirming his covenant. We see in verses 1 and 2 the same scenario that Abraham faced. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. If you've been with us for a while, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham faced the exact same scenario. God called him, and then there was a famine that threatened the blessing of God, and he's trying to figure out what to do. So it's the same scenario this happening there. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, we talked about that in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech is probably a title. It's probably not the same man, probably like calling someone Caesar or king. And so he goes to this place and God 
says that it's the same stakes, the same struggles, but a different reaction. He says, do not, he said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I tell you. And often what we see with family from learning from their mistakes is the unseen blessing of learning from those mistakes. Abraham's story, if you look at Genesis chapter 12, he goes to Egypt out of fear, going away from the presence of God, and then he ends up putting his wife in a compromising situation. So God is trying to spare Isaac of the same fate. So we see the same scenario in verses 1 and 2, but then we see the same statement that he made to Abraham about the blessing in verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give not just the land, but all these lands. So God is expanding the promise even a little further, even more than Abraham had experienced it. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I, um, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to you, your offspring, all these land, uh, lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We see the same statement. Family is a way that God shows grace to people. Family is meant to be gracious. Even if you're not a Christian, the family that God has put you in is meant to be a blessing. God wants people to flourish, and he uses the institution of the family in order to create safety and security, to teach us how to love one another, to bless one another, to share. By the way, I, I had a typo on my notes and stuff. Share, it said shove. And I was like, that's probably family too. Um, family is a training ground for teaching us how to be human, for teaching us how to love and to serve our neighbors. Tony Evans says that God established the family as the foundation of, of civilization. The family is a means of blessing for all people. The family's meant to be a safe place until you're ready to go out on your own. You know, we're not like sea turtles where you birth a child and you're like, get out of here. Like we, we raise children up in order that they can learn how to be human, how they can learn how to love their neighbor, learn how to thrive in the world, learn how to share, learn how to stand up for themselves so that when they're strong enough, they can go into the world. The family's also supposed to be a safe harbor, a place that you can come back to for, need, for time of rest. And this is meant to be a blessing that we can enjoy across generations. And this is why it hurts so much when you experience family trauma. Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. When your family's not a safe place. When you don't feel like you have anywhere to return. When it feels like something is missing. The family is a, is a means of blessing. And we see this is why Isaac is blessed. Look at verse five. Isaac receives all this blessing because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, statutes, and my laws. Isaac was blessed through the goodness of his father, Abraham. And we see that he continues to be blessed. If you look at verses 12 through 14, it says, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him because, the Lord, because God had passed down this heritage of faith through Abraham to Isaac, Isaac is benefiting from Abraham's faith. He's benefiting from Abraham's obedience. He received the blessing of the land and his wealth increased. And for you, I would bet that probably the school that you were able to go to or the career that you were able to step into or the emotional health that you have are probably the result of the blessing of your family. Someone invested in you, someone poured into you, someone provided for you, someone sacrificed for you, someone created a safe place for you to express your emotions. 
even if, even if you didn't receive this directly, my wife told me about a podcast uh, she listened to a couple years ago where this woman who's a chef was talking to this host and the host said, man, your mom and dad must have really showed you how to cook. And the, and the chef laughed and said, oh no, my mom was a terrible cook. She was awful. But she opened the kitchen and allowed me the space to explore and figure out how to use all the stuff in the kitchen. Sometimes it's by what your parents don't provide for you that you're able to grow and flourish. And this is even true of of faith, of the legacy of faith that you may have. If you're a Christian in this room, there's a good chance that your parents took you to church as a kid. There's a good chance that they invested in you and poured into you. I think about my mom, who was a single mom who was working multiple jobs, always made sure that we went to church on Sunday. Always made sure, and I was trying to sleep in like every Sunday. I was, I was sick every Sunday. I, I tried to pull the old like Ferris Bueller's Day off and like put the thermometer next to the light bulb and you get like 112 degree fever and it's like, she knows something's up. Like I tried to get out of it as much as I possibly could. But my mom's example of faith and leading us and loving us and creating an environment of care and an environment where she told us about Jesus over and over again ended up leading us to faith in Christ. Some of you have faith because your parents took you to church because your family was faithful. Some of you experienced a loving, consistent, supportive home. And it's easy to take that for granted, but what that has often set you up for is success in relationships, success at work, success in your ability to cope when struggle comes. So don't take that for granted. Family teaches you how to love your neighbor. It teaches you whether you're going to be selfish or you're going to seek self-denial. It teaches you whether you're going to seek security or comfort or seek the kingdom of God. It teaches you all these things. And no matter your family, whether good or bad, I would imagine there are a few things that you could cling to and say these things were a blessing. So just a a great exercise for us this morning would be to think of two or three ways that your family was a blessing to you. Maybe it was that they were always supportive emotionally. Maybe it was that they gave you a legacy of faith. Maybe it was that they provided for you. Be grateful for those things. And I encourage you to write them down. And then consider, how do I share those things with others? Maybe you grew up in a home where you felt incredibly supported emotionally. What about somebody in our congregation who didn't? How could you be an emotional support to them? Maybe you grew up in a home where your parents gave you Jesus again and again and again, and and following Jesus and coming to church is natural. What about someone who's a brand new believer or not even yet a believer in our congregation? How could you walk alongside them? So we we see the the blessing of family and how that shaped us, but I would imagine that we probably understand the brokenness of family a little more. We're more profoundly shaped by the brokenness of our families. Now, for all the good that Abraham did, and Abraham was called a man of faith, we see in Hebrews 11, he's lifted up as this example of faith. He wasn't a perfect dad. He wasn't a perfect husband. He wasn't a perfect man. Abraham was deeply, deeply flawed. And no matter how good your parents were, They weren't perfect. No matter how good your parents were, they made mistakes. Some parents are better than others. And I don't know everyone in here's relationship with their parents. Some of you may have had awful relationships with your parents. Some of you may have had parents that weren't even around. Maybe you never even knew your parents. But the words and the actions and the neglect, kids remember those things. As adults, we carry those things into our everyday lives. And I still remember ways that my dad put his emphasis on career and money. And the, the, the phrases he would tell me over and over and over again, and how those things began to shape me. Even the idea of what I needed to do to be loved, this idea that I need to perform and do more and do better, is deeply rooted in me. 
My kids, like, like I try to be a good dad. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to screw up as a parent. We, we've gotten asked a couple of times to do like a parenting conference. I'm like, absolutely not. Wait till my, wait till my kids are like 50 and then I'll do something. Like, I want to see how they turn out first. I, I'm going to mess up my kids in some ways. Parents, you're going to mess your kids up in some ways. Sorry to burst the bubble. Your parents are going to need one day, you're going to be sitting talking to friends about things you said or things you did 20 years ago. They're going to be sitting there talking to a counselor in an office about, like, and it's good. That's a good thing, okay? They, we're broken people and we need to unpack these things. But the, the longer that I'm a parent, the more sympathetic I am for my parents. I'm like, wait a minute, they were winging it too right? It gives us a whole lot of sympathy, but we see that we are shaped by the brokenness of our families, and we're shaped in two ways when we see repeated family dysfunction. We tend to repeat the family dysfunction or or have a tendency toward repeating the family dysfunction that we experienced growing up. Isaac's family is a hot mess. They're an absolute mess. We see Isaac's dad, Abraham, uh, committed uh, adultery, infidelity. His wife, Sarah, gave her servant, Hagar, to him to have a child by, and it causes all sorts of problems. There's strife between Abraham and Sarah that you know Isaac felt. I mean, if you ever live in a house where your parents are at odds with each other, you feel it. It created tension with his half-brother, Ishmael, so much so that their descendants ended up becoming enemies, and you see that they were able in Genesis chapter 25, verse 9, to bury the hatchet a little while so that they could bury their father. You're cordial at the funeral. Isaac comes from a mixed family. He had a stepmom, Keturah. They had children. She wa- he watched his dad play favorites, and this even shaped his actions as he then repeated those actions with Esau and Jacob. We saw at the end of the sermon last week how he had a favorite in Esau. And that's what type of favorite kid. He definitely did. And he didn't favor Esau for the right reasons. He favored Esau because of what Esau could do for him. The way that Esau performed. The type of manliness that Esau provided. One of the things my dad used to say all the time was that he was proud of me. And what I actually began to realize was it was all the ways that I made him look good as a dad. It's easy to to take pride in our kids when they're doing something for us, but we see that this ends up leading to pain at the end of chapter 26 as Esau marries two, that's a problem, two Hittite women, uh, and and we see the fallout that's going to be coming in the next few weeks because of that. They didn't disciple and love their son for the right reasons. Your family dysfunction has a way of creeping up and repeating itself in your family. So if you come from a family of alcoholics, it's easy to repeat that same sin as a coping mechanism. If you come from a family where you're neglected, you often neglect others. If you come from a family of abandonment, you can actually do the opposite and you can cling to other people so tightly that you're afraid they're going to leave. If you come from a family with a parent who's emotionally detached, it's really hard for you to connect with other people. Maybe you even become codependent in other scenarios and you can, you can become the very things that you said you hated. That you swore you wouldn't be that way. You swore that you would never repeat. So you can end up becoming those things or you could do the opposite, which is that you are countershaped by those things. Instead of becoming those things, you're so obsessed with not being those things that the pendulum swings all the way to the other end and you have a whole other set of problems. 
Both my, my dad and my grandfather on my dad's side both committed adultery and both left their wives. And I, I was so utterly afraid of repeating those sins that it made, me, it made it very difficult for me to be vulnerable with anyone, very difficult to, to be close to anyone. It, it can countershape us. So we're shaped by the repeated dysfunction of our families, but we can also be shaped by the failures and fears that we tend to repeat as well. We see in verse six that Isaac does repeat some of his father's sins. Verse six, he settles in Gerar. Verse seven, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Now we've seen this twice before, right? Seen this in Genesis chapter 12. We've seen this in Genesis chapter 20. Abraham's dad did the exact same thing. And the, the, the scheme repeats itself. They see that she's beautiful. And he says, for he feared to say, my, my wife thinking uh, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. And so he's thinking, I've got to do something. I, I've, got, I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got to take things into my own hands. And he allows fear to drive him just like it drove Abraham. But we notice that this fear is unfounded because it says in verse eight, when he had been there a long time, He'd been there long enough to see that these things actually weren't going to happen. Fear was driving him. He was never in danger, but he probably had heard the stories from his dad and maybe even had seen the stories and heard the stories and seen how much that hurt his mom. But he thought, man, this worked out for dad. I, I, need, to, I need to do this. But his fear ends up making it worse. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah his wife. Now that term laughing there is not just like, oh, I told a funny joke. It's like flirting, not treating your sister this way. This was a romantic interchange between the two of them. And Abimelech sees this and he becomes, he's enraged. So he calls Isaac to him and he says, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac says, because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? He ends up making it worse. When you live by fear, you make it worse. And fear and failure have implications for all of our relationships. And when we make decisions out of fear and out of failure, repeating the same failures as the past, we hurt other people. We see Abimelech said, one of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. The repetition of failure and fear that we inherit from our families has a way of affecting all of our relationships. Everyone is shaped by the blessing and the brokenness of our families. And what this does is your family gives you a default. Your family's brokenness and its blessing gives you a default that, then you, that you then bring into your family, that you then bring into all of your relationships. It gives you a default for the way that you relate to others. If trust was always broken in your family, whether it was from an absent parent or a neglectful parent, or a parent who made promises but never actually came through, it can cause you to be suspicious and untrusting and accusing and distant. But in the same way, if you had a parent who was affectionate, you tend to be more open and vulnerable. So what is, what is your default way of relating to other people? There's a saying that hurt people hurt people. And so our hurt can lead to using people Physically or emotionally, it can lead to being emotionally unavailable. It can lead to these repeated patterns. Have you ever had that moment where you said something, you're like, oh my gosh, I sound just like my mom or I sound just like my dad? We, we repeat these and it's how we relate to others. What are the unhealthy patterns that you see you've inherited from your family of origin? 
How, how are they affecting your relationships? How are they affecting the way that you cope or the way that you communicate? Maybe you tend to be an attacker because your family always attacked, or you tend to be an avoider because no one ever talked about any sort of problem. It gives you a default for how you relate to the world, the way that you see money. If your family was always worried about money, maybe it created this insecurity where you always feel like you got to make more money. Maybe your parents were always working and never available, and they've instilled that in you where you just can't stop working, or your habits, or the way you talk. Think about how your parents worked or communicated. How are you repeating those things positively, negatively? How are they shaping you? But it also gives you a default for how you relate to God. I became a Christian at 17. Do you want to know what the biggest hangup for me was about coming to faith in Christ? Calling God Father. Calling God Father was, I wanted to call God anything but Father. Because I didn't see the Father as someone who was going to be there, who was going to be faithful, who was going to be around. And for you, maybe you have a hard time relating to God because you have a hard time believing God is safe. You have a hard time believing that God is kind. You have a hard time believing that God loves you apart from anything that you've ever done. You have a hard time believing God could really love you. And if you're a parent or hope to be a parent in this room, I want to tell you this, you are shaping the way your kids see the Lord. The way that you pursue Christ and prioritize the church teaches your kids and will have a major impact, not, not a guarantee, but a major impact on whether they continue in the faith or not. You know, I tell my kids all the time, I make breakfast for them most mornings, read the Bible with them at breakfast, and I say, one day this has to be yours without me. But the reality is, is that I'm teaching them implicitly and explicitly whether it's going to be or not. What's the culture in your home? Is your culture, the culture in your home a culture of grace or a culture of performance? When it comes to gathering with God's people, do we come when it's convenient or is this the non-negotiable that we move everything else around for? And if you're not a parent and you hope to be, you need to start patterning your life in such a way that it is a priority. And if you're not a parent, you could also be a witness to your friends in the way that you teach them explicitly and implicitly that God matters more than anything in your life. One of the most countercultural things that you can do in Boston is go to church, right? There's a lot of things you can do on a, Saturday, on a Sunday morning. There's kids' sports leagues. There's brunch. Nebraska's got great brunch. I'm not saying leave here right now and go to brunch, but like go after church. Like there's lots of things you could be doing on a Sunday morning. We are counterculturally saying we're going to sit before God under his word because we love him more than anything. And that shapes our relationships. Are we teaching our kids or others to be fearful or to have faith? Isaac found blessing in the driest place possible. They stopped up all the wells and he still found favor among his enemies. Boston often feels like a place that we're not able to thrive. It is a place where God's people can thrive. So whether good or bad, your family's blessing and brokenness show you this, that there is a better family you need. No matter how good your family is, no matter how hard your family was, there's still a better family. And the great hope for Isaac and the great hope for you is that God is a perfect father who lo perfectly loves us. He's faithful to his promises that not once has he ever let us down. To Isaac, he blesses him immensely. He blesses him a hundredfold. 
We see that he blesses him in verses 15 through 21 in the midst of adversity. They stop up all the wells. He's fighting with the, the people of the land over water and God still blesses him. In verses 26 through 33, we see he's in relational conflict and God still blesses him and brings him through it. God is so faithful to you because you're a part of a better family in Christ. He's faithful to forgive. Man, Isaac screws it up. You you think if anybody would not repeat the same sin as as his father, it'd be Isaac, right? He's seen all the mess of his dad and he just repeats the same thing. I had a conversation this week with someone who's exploring faith and I'm discipling him and he's reading the Bible like crazy. You can pray for him. And I said, said, hey, um, what are you taking away from the Bible? And he says, man, these people fail a lot. And I'm like, yes, that's a, that's a big take. That's like takeaway number one, big E on the eye chart. That is a big one, right? Everybody keeps failing, but God is faithful to forgive your sin. And what this forgiveness allows you to do is it allows you to heal from your past like Isaac does. It allows you to reconcile relationships. It allows you to not have to make some of the same mistakes. And it allows you to either continue or create a legacy of faith. So how do you become a part of this better family? It's through faith in God's son, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, when you call on Jesus to save you, you become a part of a new family. That you are no longer an orphan. That no matter what your home life was like, you have a new family and a new story with God. And as Dan Allender, an incredible counselor, says, he says, take seriously the story that God has given you to live. It's time to read your own life because your story is one that could set us all ablaze. And so the church is a place where we can learn to be family. Where we can be a family together, which ends up impacting our individual families. And I want City on a Hill to be a place where we exhibit the love and the grace of our Father as a family. Jeff Vandersill says, who is God? He is our Father. What has he done? He has loved us by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. Who are we? We are the dearly loved children of God, God's family. If we believe this, what do we do? We love one another as brothers and sisters in the same way God has loved us. The problem is, is just like you bring that default into your biological family, we bring that same default into God's family. And we have to be patient with each other. The church can be a place of healing. It can be a place of encouraging each other together as we look to Christ who heals us from all the brokenness of our family. So how can we make sitting in a hill be that? There's four takeaways before we close. First of all is commit to love these people. Commit to love these people in this room. Love one another. Say, these are my people. Secondly, commit to serve these people. Don't just come to church to receive. How do you encourage and serve someone else? Commit to this place. Stealing this straight up from Jonathan Mosley. Um, we're, we're praying for 50 people committed to the city of Boston. Uh, when, I, when, I told, when he told me that prayer, I said, I'm absolutely praying the same prayer. Um, we're praying for 50 people to love our city well, to commit to be a part of the church in this community. 
commit to invite others into the family. If you've seen the goodness and the grace of a father who loved you enough to give you a son, why wouldn't you share that with somebody else?